Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the third lecture in our 10-part summer series. Today's lecture is sponsored by an anonymous donor in honor of AFA. AFA, as you will know, is the American Printing History Association. And AFA, if you don't know about it, you should know about it because printing history is entirely congruent with much of the work of Rare Book School. So I recommend it to you, and I am deeply grateful, as I'm sure are you, for the benefaction that we receive that enables us to do this this evening. I'm willing to bet that Fenella France, our speaker this evening, has strong opinions about whether or not the song The Star-Spangled Banner ought or ought not to be our national anthem. Sure, it's sung before baseball games and hockey games even, but some people say it should be America the Beautiful. Our speaker today has stake in the game. Fenella France is the chief of the Preservation Research and Testing Division of the Library of Congress. And she is responsible for researching non-destructive imaging techniques and prevention of collection environmental degradation. She saves stuff. Saves stuff from time and saves stuff from the environment. Dr. France has more than 20 years experience in heritage preservation science, which has to be one of the coolest terms around. Hi, I'm a heritage preservation scientist. Including 10 years of working for such federal agencies now, it would be more, of the Library of Congress, the Smithsonian Institution, and the National Park Service. She has both a master's degree and a PhD in textile science, as well as very useful for working in a federal agency and MBA. She is an international specialist on the aging of cultural materials. She focuses on the links between the mechanical properties and chemical changes from environment and various treatments. She's worked on projects ranging from World Trade Center artifacts, pre-Columbian heritage, and the Ellis Island Treasures Gallery rehabilitation. But the way that she became famous and important was because this is the scientist who was responsible for preserving the Star Spangled Banner. How cool is that? We had occasion to meet several years ago at the super pretentiously titled First International Summit of the Book at the Library of Congress. 
There were no Sherpas present at the summit of the book, but there we stood, cold and lonely on the mountaintop. And um, uh, Fenella gave a, a fabulous presentation on that day, and I thought to myself, we're going to get you for Rare Book School. And lo and behold, here she is, a great leader in cultural heritage, a woman scientist in a world where there are few who has dedicated her energies with tremendous purpose and a great sense of humanity to preserving and to mediating what has been given to us to be stewards for the next generation. Fenella France, thank you. Michael, thank you so much for the invitation here. It's such a, an honour to be here at the Rare Book School. That's always that term that everyone throws about, the sort of magical Rare Book School in Charlottesville, and so I truly am honoured to be here. To be able to share some of the work that I've really had the privilege of being able to do over the past two decades. I didn't realise I was getting on. <laughs> so why is this important and why is it interesting? I find that... Our heritage is so critical to who we are and the context in which we live and how we understand other cultures. And yet, when we start to look at some of the things that are hidden within and the science behind it, quite often it becomes a little bit scary. So part of my mission is to make that unscary, and forgive me, some of my terms are not very precise, unscary, and, and really try to do that work where we collaborate with our fellow colleagues in other fields and make this come alive. And I have to say, all of the projects I've worked on where it's been really incredibly exciting, we've had curators, researchers, scholars, scientists, digital specialists, <coughs> conservators, all working together because we all have special skills and none of the work that you've seen could have come together without all of those people working together. So, as Michael said, um, we have a few things at the library, um, about 158 million objects. It gets even more interesting because one object might be the 600-something pages of the Madison debate papers. So it's not just one thing. It's a, a lot bigger than that. And the mission of my directorate is to make sure that the collections are available either in their original or reformatted form. That's kind of a challenge because as a library, we're a little bit different to some other cultural heritage institutions. We have the collection there to be used. It has to be handled. So we're always balancing that access with the fact that you want them to be used because people were drawing more knowledge out of them, but how do we make them be preserved and stay around for generations to come? So they're the, the, the little things that keep me up at night. And so one of the things I think is really interesting, we talk about archaeology often in terms of digs and you know, going down into the earth, but really there's so much, as you're starting to see, and I've seen this sitting in some of the sessions today, it's amazing what you're learning already and how much you already know, but really digging into our collections, our manuscripts, our books, and what's hidden within them that we didn't realise was there, that we can just glean and pull out. And this is where this blend of science and humanities really starts to come together and add a richness and more uh, impact to what we know about our collections. And further on, I'll talk a little bit more about a term that a colleague and I have coined called scriptospatial. 
So when I talk about non-invasive, that literally means we don't touch the object, we don't take anything object from the object, the document, and we try not to have any impact on it at all. And this is a little bit uh, different to how it used to be. If you wanted to know what a pigment was, you kind of took a little chunk off a piece. Um, you know, they, they're really not too comfortable with me chopping the corner off the Gettysburg Address, so we kind of have to balance those things out. And this is where these new technologies help us understand more. What I want to say, though, is that if we hadn't preserved the originals, we wouldn't be able to use the new technologies to find this information that's hidden within them. And that's where I come back to where we talk about digitisation as access, it is, it's not necessarily preservation because if you digitise something and you don't look really underneath and all the nuances of what's there, part of the context, then you're not getting the full picture. So we have both visible and non-visible information that start to blend together here. And I've coined a term, the digital cultural object, because I want to make sure that the images and the, the stack of information that we're gaining is an adjunct to the original. It's not can't ever replace the original object. So I'm coining a term I call the digital cultural object, and that's bringing access to this information that we didn't know before. And again, you know, that balance between the preservation and access. So what do we see when we do this imaging? Well, we actually start in the ultraviolet, go right through the visible and into the infrared with these narrow wave bands of light. What's interesting about the system that we have at the library, it's very low light, very low heat on the object. So it was actually customised for what we want to do. And I'll stop that before you go blind watching it. But what we essentially have is a stack of images. Because there's no filtering at the camera, there's no pixel shift at all. So they're all fully registered. You have this nice stack. And you can start to see as we go through, certain things pop out and drop out in different wave bands. We can pick a point anywhere on the substrate or the pigment and get a unique curve for the specific chemistry of that material that will tell us exactly what it is. We then, in terms of our process, and create what I'm calling a pseudo-colour image. Uh, but we start on the left with our full-spectrum full colour, and you can see there it sort of looks a little bit washed out. Well, actually, what we have... This is exactly the same image, but we've processed it to enhance certain components. So on the left-hand side, those faded red, faded green lines is verdigris, a copper-containing pigment. On the right-hand side, you can see that copper is actually eating into the parchment. So that's part of what we're doing. We can use this to actually preserve and see how things are changing over time and really see things that you don't see in the visible. And that's where it gets really exciting. Jefferson's handwritten draft of the Declaration of Independence. I really, as I said, had the privilege to work with some incredible documents and uh, objects, and it continues on. And this is really exciting. This is the original handwritten draft. You can see that these very neat cross-outs, and he puts the change above the early track changes, so we can see exactly what he was thinking. If it isn't his change, you can see in the margin, he either puts Dr. Franklin or Mr. Adam. He assigns the change to whoever made it. What was interesting after we'd imaged this, and I was looking through the pages, and I realised there was one place in the document, only one place, where you could actually see what looked like a smudge. Right here it says, fellow citizens. And I thought, well, that's odd. And I realised going through the different wave bands, there was something underneath. What was a challenge, though, was that the inks were very similar, and it looked like it had been. It looked like he was trying to obscure it, and you can start to see these sort of the smudge underneath. 
The other thing that was interesting, and I'll talk about the fact that it was always things that were the best idea at the time, this document was laminated, which means they put it between 600 pounds pressure, high heat, two layers of cellulose acetate and mushed it all together. We don't do that anymore. But you can see here how it obscures some of the surface. But you're starting to see, it looks like maybe a T at the end, some dots and things there. He'd actually originally written fellow subjects and changed it to fellow citizens. I thought this was kind of quite a seminal moment. I went flying up to our sixth floor, which is all our, where my director lives, and we, you know, some of us know about this. I finally found reference to a researcher from Princeton who'd been going through Jefferson's papers. And Jefferson noted he'd been copying from the Virginia Constitution that was written two months earlier. And he said, as I wrote this word, I realised this was wrong for our new country. So I expunged it, never to be seen again. So we are de-expunging things. I had a slight ethical moment when we started doing some of this. And I thought, you know, these people, these are things on these documents. Some of them didn't want to, you know, they were trying to obscure them. But this gives us direct insight into the thoughts of our founding fathers, and it is part and retains and remains part of the original document. So, along with some help from my director, I got over that ethical crisis quite, quite quickly. So, as you can see, a really nice example of going back and seeing something that, without this technology, we wouldn't have actually found. The James Madison debate papers. I'll share a funny story with you. You've probably realised that... Um, this is a deep southern accent, <laughs> very deep south. And so every time I say medicine, apparently it sounds like medicine. Finally someone said to me, what's this new collection at the library called the Medicine Papers? I, I'm actually trying to say medicine. So the James Madison debate papers, apparently he mumbled very badly and the note takers had terrible trouble actually writing down his thought process and what he was thinking about uh, as he went through these documents. He actually added on annotations. In the latter years, he went through with his nephew and said to his nephew, you know, I actually don't want to leave some of these. Can you actually remove them? I think you know where we're going here. So there's a section here, and even just without any processing, we can actually start to bring up the entire line of text that he had erased. Another example here, you can see very clearly that it just pops out there, and we can bring the text back. So these are about 690 pages. We've just finished imaging the entire collection. Um, it's going to take a while to actually do this analysis, but we have all the information captured, and that's why we adore and love interns, because it's the only way we move some of these projects forward. Another example, slightly more risque. I don't know how many of you know much about Governor Morris. He, uh, one of the founding fathers, he spent a lot of time in Paris, apparently was well known for his liaisons with the ladies, and... Uh, wrote copious diaries. We had a researcher at the library who wanted us to start to look at some of these diaries because his wife went through in later years and decided to heavily redact some of the sections that she didn't seem quite too happy about. You can see here an example, and I won't go into it in more detail because the research is still working on it, but you can start to see, we can really start to pull out some of that, that underneath text there. So you can see here, this morning, he's starting to say... So just another example of, even with the heavy redactions, there's a lot we can do with not extensive processing. The L'Enfant Plan of Washington, D.C., this is from 1791. And this was really interesting because um, it was actually on the wall in the land grants office, and it was a working document to them. And so it was exposed to the light, it was starting to fade, 
they covered it with a varnish, a high glue coating, to try and protect it from fading any more. Unfortunately, they ended up obscuring the text even further. So this is what you see in the visible, but in fact, this is what's underneath there. So you can see how the street grid just pops right out at you. And this is, this is why the imaging is so much fun, because on, honestly, we don't know until we start doing it what we're actually going to find, and then with later processing. So we can go in closer and see the President's house, which of course is the White House. Congress House or Capitol. Jefferson put a line through this and he said, no, Congress, this Capitol, this is where the centre is going to be. So he changed words and was writing all over this. My favourite is on the left-hand side, you can see there's a little K and a circle. It looks like they were going to put a circle at K and 16th Street. I, I check with Google Maps, there is no circle at K and 16th Street, and I, I even read the latest Dan Brown book. He hasn't told me yet what was going to be there. But uh, you can see that we actually pull out a lot of information that I'm not a scholar of L'Enfant and that time period. We desperately need the input from the scholars and the researchers uh, in these particular, with these specialties in these particular areas. So that's why that collaboration is so critical and so important. Also, we have, I don't know if you can see here, we have the words struck out in a line, and then at the bottom the words insertive height, it's very faint. But when we did the unique curve for those two pencils, the words struck out and the line are spectrally different to the insertive height at the bottom, which seems to match Jefferson's writing. So we can start to separate out different hands as well as, if we could take that a little bit further, we could possibly even say the time period from that pencil. But that's really, you can start to see, we're really starting to find a wealth of information on these materials that before no one even knew was there. The Gettysburg Address, another of my favourites, everyone keeps asking what my favourite is, but there's so many, they're all so unique and special in their own way, and that's what makes it so exciting. And this was written by Lincoln. You can see the first page there is on Mansion Stationery, and it's just so very neat. He writes in ink, and then at the bottom he crosses that out and writes in pencil, we here be dedicated to the great task that remains before us. And that second page is written on rough blotter paper. So when we imaged this, we found in the ultraviolet region there were some areas that seemed to be fluorescing. What we in fact found was a thumb on the front and three fingers on the back of the page that they think he wrote before he gave the uh, address in Gettysburg. So what did I do? Yes, I went running round to see could I find an original of Lincoln's be able to say whether or not it was Lincoln's fingerprints. Unfortunately, while we do have his death mask and the mould of his hands, his hands were swollen from shaking at the inauguration, so they actually have him holding onto a broom handle. So that wasn't very helpful. Uh, we've looked at a number of other documents, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, the First and Second Inaugural Address. We've got lots of part fingerprints, but I've been working with the criminal investigation there. What we tried to see is, is there software where we can start to put together some of those part fingerprints to get enough of a picture to be able to say, yes, we do have consistency across these, uh, these different documents. So... It's amazing what you keep finding. What's interesting also is this has been of a great interest to the forensic field because they currently use techniques like fuming, which are destructive, and they really like the idea that they can use some of these techniques. I gave a talk about uh, some of the work we've done with fingerprints uh, at a forensic conference done in Atlanta, and it was very moving because a woman came up to me afterwards and she was working on the James Binet Ramsey case, and she said to me, 
is it possible we could use this technique to look at items that have already had other treatments done to them. So you can see there's a lot of crossover between different fields um, for this. Another thing here is this, these pseudo colours probably look a bit strange to you. What's nice about them is often you see things that your mind doesn't know is there because when it's a different colour you're not telling yourself what you think you should see. You can see here that the, the inks, which were black of course, the mansion writing, are showing up differently because they're chemically different. But also the handwriting you're seeing is dark and light blue. That's actually the intensity of his writing. And this is really interesting. I've been talking with folks from the National Library of Medicine. Throughout history, often people were taught to scribe the same. That was, you know, I don't know, you did it when I was a little kid. We had, you know, there was a top line, there was a bottom line. You had to make the loop crossover. I know, it was before some of your time. But um, this is where we can start to say, even though people are scribing the same, they would possibly tend to have a similar emphasis on certain words. And we have gone through some of Lincoln's documents to sort of look at some of the words and try and see the similarities and differences in terms of the pressure that he's using for different words. So another interesting um, component of just, as you can see, there's so many different things that we can find with the imaging. What I have turned it around from is, rather than me as a scientist saying, we'll do this, my question is to the curator, what do you want to find out? And then we'll see if we can do it. That's where it gets really fun. Going backwards in history a little bit, uh, Portland charts from 1320. And these were actually vellum man nautical manuscripts. There was a question from the curator about whether these actually were from the time period they were thought to be from. And you can see here we've got from 1320, one of the oldest, uh, through to 1633, because there had been the suggestion of a cottage industry uh, you know, a number of centuries later, and they just wanted to see, could we actually tell were the pigments from the uh, geographical region where they were printed, was the evidence of trade routes if thing, uh, pigments had come from somewhere else, could we determine if the colour was relevant to the time period. So, this was one of the first instances where we really started to push the whole non-invasive component with trying to understand and look at colourants more effectively. And another term I coined was sort of taking a pixel sample from the image. So we literally took a pixel sample from the image of the red line and we could match it perfectly with vermilion, which is a red pigment. So this was some of the things we started to do to look at what we were finding and making sure and understanding whether it was consistent with the time period or what other information it was bringing out and telling us. What was also interesting is we can start to look how information is laid down on the document. With these portalins, there was a question about how they were constructed. And here you can see, just it's a little bit difficult, I mean you can visibly see some things, but with the processing it really jumps out because Chemically, they're different. You can really sort of see what lines were laid down first. What is interesting is it was always thought that you would have the rum lines would be laid down first, then the coastline, then the writing. But you can see here some of the lines actually go over some of the writing. So, as we often do, we end up creating more questions than we answer, but that's what makes it so interesting. And it really pushes us to think more and think about the knowledge and the information uh, that this means. Also, I think this was one of the earliest times where I loved the visu visuality of what we do with this. These, this is uh, from the 1320 Portland, and these toponyms or place names were used to actually date the, the object. 
And of course, geographically, they would change as a country was invaded by another one, so you could actually track the changes. But you can look at the bottom right corner here, and you can see how we can just pop that out. I can't read this text, but I can give it to the curator, and then they can track back and look at the provenance. So that's why that collaboration component is, is just so wonderful. And again here, if you look at this image, and you can see how we can just really pop the information out. And, and I think that visuality takes away that feeling that science is out there and makes us realise that actually it's very integrated together. And talking a little bit more about creation techniques, this is where interns are wonderful. I had an optical engineering student from Paris one summer, and we were working on the portalins, and I said to her, can you actually look at this portalin and tell me everywhere there's an actual hole in the object? What I should add the caveat to this as well is that because a lot of these are top treasure documents, some of them come down to the lab with a police escort. I'm literally given from 8.30 to X period of time to image. And as it walks out the door, you went, oh, that was the Gettysburg Address. You know, so sometimes you don't get time to really absorb and enjoy. So it's really capturing that information to better make it available to researchers. So you can see here, she sort of found hmm, what seems to be a circle. Well, this was really interesting because there was some literature that suggested a hidden circle in terms of how these um, Portland charts were created. You can see also it goes off the parchment itself. So were they using a template to size up and size down? Because when we looked at the accuracy between some of these from the same time period, they were incredibly accurate over a period of you know, two to four hundred years. So again, as I said, uh, another question we've raised rather than definitely answering. One thing I'm not going to spend too much time on, but is of a lot of interest to me, is that we can detect change before it's vis visually observable. And I find that very interesting because we do want to put things on exhibit, we do want to make them accessible, but if we can detect change and understand which parts are light sensitive, then we can protect and preserve our collections more effectively. And so one more modern collection that um, I'm going to mention the Hublot political cartoon collection, he was a cartoonist for the Washington Post. We have him, his entire collection, something like 50,000 drawings, and part of the bequeath to the library was that some of them had to be on exhibit all the time. In the 1970s, he popped down to the corner store, picked up felt-tip pens, and that's what he used to create his drawings with. They're not particularly light-sensitive, and we've now found some of them are fading in the dark. So I have a long-term study where we're trying to identify, given that they're all black pens generally, it's a little bit difficult to look and see exactly the difference between them, but spectrally they're slightly different. And so we can actually separate those out and start to go through the collection and find out which part of the collection is more at risk than others. So what we've done here, and I, these are just so wonderful because they're still so relevant today, so many of these cartoons. What we've been doing is we generate what I talked about as this unique spectral curve. On the right-hand side are the curves from the actual object itself. On the left-hand side, you can see a black line at the bottom. That's the modern, uh, what I should add in here is that the curator, the conservator who went to collect the drawings actually took a sample of his materials. That's brilliant. So we actually have his original materials that we can track back and use as sample. So the, red, the black line is just the straight as is unaged. You can see the one on the right is slightly curved. So we actually age this pigment 
until we got it to look similar to what we were seeing on the drawing itself. So now we can start to get an estimate of how much it's degraded and also uniquely characterise which part of the collection is changing more than others. So now I'm getting questions from people saying, if President Obama wants to write a signature, which pen should he use? So it's always interesting. Watermarks. I know that you're probably looking at some of those and many of you have worked with this. And we've been using... Uh, the background behind this is that they keep taking our toys away at the Library of Congress. While we used to be able to have the beta radiograph plates, they decided that wasn't safe anymore, so they took them away. So I started then using the uh, light imaging to do transmitted light imaging with the different wave bands, which is interesting, good for flat materials and also looking at bound materials that can be a little bit more difficult. So we've got a, a light wedge now with different wave bands, which works uh, quite effectively. And so here's an interesting example. They've done that broadside. That's what you see in reflected, transmitted, and with a little bit of processing, we drop out the text and we pop out the watermark. And I was smiling in the session this afternoon when we were talking about uh, the history of paper and how England often had to import it from other places. As you can see, this is a Dutch watermark. So it's always interesting looking back to the provenance of some of our early founding materials from here and where the source material actually came from. I want to now take that together. You've seen a lot of examples. I really wanted to give you a feel for the range of information that we can capture with this technology. So two examples I now want to bring together to sort of show how we can find information and bring it together in different ways. In 2008, the library purchased the Vera Norva Gospel from 1487. It was an early Armenian gospel, uh, which is very rare. And what was interesting is that, um, not sure how much you know about Armenia, but this was from the monastery which is in the southeast region of Armenia and is not too far from the northern section of the Silk Road. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. What was particularly interesting is this also had provenance, which was unusual. The monk actually noted in there the Holy Gospel was written and illuminated by the undeserving and unschooled scribe Grigor Abegna. Forgive my angulation of the name. Also, um, if you look at the construction of the pages, you can see in fact that there was a grid here, but the scribe didn't use the grid. He actually wrote right across. So it's possible that was already pre-marked up or it had been prepared for some other manuscript. So just little bits of information that we're starting to, to pull out together. What we're particularly interested in was the object came to conservation and preservation to look at stabilising it because it had four illuminations and some of them were starting to look, there was different areas of them that looked like they were degrading. So we're very interested in the original palette that he used and how, that was, uh, how these were created. One of my colleagues in conservation actually went back and started looking at early Armenian painting techniques. And while this, um, I, I found this particularly fascinating because if you're going to lighten a pink, you add white. If you're going to lighten a blue or a yellow, you add white. But for a green and a red, you add yellow to lighten it. So we were intrigued about this in terms of some of the degradation we're seeing on different coloured pigments within the uh, illumination itself. And this is how it actually, uh, Tamara actually put this together. So she traced there out the original, 
It always started with the face and the arm of the uh, the, uh, the disciple, and then the colours were added in the lighter colours first. Then they would add the next layer of colour, and then further on. And most of that seems to ignore the, the textual uh, component of, of adding that in. And when you look at them side by side, uh, it's very interesting. You can see the vivid and how much that just pops out at you of the original. Uh, but, and you can see how over time the colours had faded. And it's, it's always stunning to me because when we look at these side by side, you're so used to seeing the degraded one that the other one almost does look garish by comparison. But these were the colours that they were using and the way they actually created them. We went back to the original recipes. When we looked at this analytically, we were looking at, we were very interested in the blue. Uh, the reds were quite complex, but I'll just mention the blue today. And we found with X-ray fluorescence what's known as smalt. It's a blue pigment that was used in the glass making industry. And you might not think that's very interesting, but generally we hadn't seen the use of smalt until a number of centuries later in Italy, and it was always thought that that's where it was first introduced. We often use more than one technique because you can't always bring up all the information with one technique. So another type of spectroscopy called Raman, we found a perfect spectra for ultramarine. And you might say, so, ultramarine lapis lazuli was only found in Afghanistan at the time, incredibly expensive. So what it looks like they were doing was this technology transfer from the glassmaking industry, and they were actually using the smalt, that cheaper pigment, to extend the very expensive lapis lazuli. So as you can see, really interesting as we started to really dig in, so to speak, uh, without physically digging in, to understand what we were finding and how they put this together. And we could reconstruct the entire palette that he used, all the different pigments, either wide range there of both uh, inorganic or metal-containing ones as well as organic plant-containing uh, pigments and a very rare example of tin white as well. So this was incredibly useful when they put this on exhibit to be able to understand and explain how this was actually constructed and, and put together. It was also rebound in the original uh, technique and because this is not my strength I'm just going to mention it and give uh, credit where credit is due and use of traditional materials to rehouse this um, in the way it should have, or as close to as what they thought it should have been originally. And that go, credit goes to Yasmin Khan and Tamara Ahanyan from the Conservation Division. So one other example I want to sort of now pull together, a Ptolemy Geographia from 1513, the Rosenwald Collection, and we worked very closely with Dandy Simone, who's now since jumped ship and gone to the Folger, um, and uh, conservators in the uh, Sylvia Elbro, another of my colleagues, Lynn Brostoff, and at the times are uh, John Hessler from the um, Geography Map Division. And this was uh, particularly interesting because his 47 hand printed maps in the, the volume. The first section is the Ptolemy based texts and maps, and the sec second section is text and maps that were based on European discoveries up to about the early 16th century. We were trying to find out, you know, there were inscriptions and we were trying to find out information. And so we were looking back to see when did this come into the collection, how much do they pay for it, things like that. So we found on that front page a reference to what looked like 735, 
and then we did find the record in the Rosenbach Museum and Library where it actually noted that that was the amount that was paid for that volume when it came into the library. And there was also another section that, that I loved at the bottom there, Terras Bengte, Mended and Restored. So you can see here that uh, with the imaging you can start to pull out some of these inscriptions that are actually have degraded and uh, can't easily be reviewed. The main interaction we had with this though was because you can see it's very tightly bound and it was very much used by researchers because of the, the, the hand-coloured uh, maps in it. You can also see uh, what looks like a transfer on that right-hand page through the maps and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more but it, basically that's probably verdigris which is a copper containing pigment and it's actually degrading and copper is a trace metal it's corrosive so it actually degrades paper if they're not in good condition. So before we went any further we were sort of curious about the binding. Well we found the central guards and looked at those further and there was only tiny fragments of them but we could match those to a watermarked paper from 1925. So as we suspected along with some of the binding sewing threads it was a later binding than it wasn't an original binding. And that was actually a good thing. It helped with a little bit more uh, to nut out the puzzle of what we were thinking about. Because we could find when we opened up the pages that while there was areas that were, the green was in very poor condition, in the gutter it was actually in good condition. And why also, if these 47 maps were only seven of the pages in bad condition? So it was really quite a mystery. It didn't make sense. And you can see on the bottom right-hand side there the difference between the, the, the good and the poor condition. So we looked at this with X-ray fluorescence, and that's the next slide, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we found this sort of accretion on the surface. And what did we find? We actually found that that was potash alum. had been could be used as a sizing treatment or sometimes a, a protective treatment in the past, and it looked like it had been brushed on across the surface. However, you can see, if you look there also in the copper, where the, the red lines are raised up, which means there's more copper. When they brushed it on, they brushed the copper all across the surface of the maps that were already in poor condition. So they in, increased the degradation with that brushing on. So we're in, a, in an ongoing treatment here to try and pull off the, 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 the alum from that, stabilise them, because we can see how much we've reduced certain levels of uh, the elements on the surface of these materials. And now we're going to jump to the Voldsemiel, and you'll find out why in a minute. This is the first map that refers to America. It's on a long-term exhibit at the Library of Congress because it was part of its condition when it came to the library in 2007. The agreement with the German government was that we'd put it on exhibit for 25 to 30 years. I know everyone's cringing, and that's why it's in an anoxic encasement, and we've taken all the oxygen out, and we removed the, replaced the oxygen with argon gas. So we have here this reference to America, and keep in mind what that left-hand side of the map looks like there. We also have the two central sheets, sheet six and seven, where it had faded red grid lines, and I'm not a cartographer by background, but this was a way to say, how do we Look at this, this is 1507. How do we show 3D space in a 2D rendition? So with the imaging, of course, we can pull back those red grid lines, and then with the pseudo-colour, we can really pop them out. I 
created this image and I went over to Jean Hébert who was then the uh, head of geography map division and I was kind of just flipping through and he went, no, stop, stop, look, the lines start here and stop there and I went, so that's important. I, it didn't mean anything to me but apparently that was incredibly relevant to someone who knew cartography. So that's why that collaboration and that condensing and sharing of knowledge is just so critical to better add this knowledge together. It, it really is. What we also did was we have what we call low-angle side lighting. And by putting together an algorithm, we managed to recreate what the original wood block that it was printed from might have looked like. I just adore this. I could look at these images. I could have put a whole slide of all of the different pages up for you because it's just so exciting. We can go back now and say, were those the type of tool marks we expected from materials they had at the time? So we can really start to think a lot more because the original woodblock doesn't exist, of course. It's not around anymore. This is actually a woodblock with a metal insert on the bottom right-hand corner. So this is all really interesting. But let's take that one step more. If we look at the world today, and it's like, well, let's spin on South America. They were incredibly accurate for the bottom section of South America there. We weren't so good further up, but this is really interesting. I've been working with some colleagues um, over in Belgium and other places where they're trying to track and put together the routes and the um, voyages that actually must have been around or contributed to the knowledge to be able to create these maps and what were the volumes that linked to this. So you can see here how just you know, this interaction and multidisciplinary connection of information is, is really interesting. So let's go back to watermarks. Well, if we go back to the, um, the Ptolemy, you can see here we've got a crown watermark, a fleur-de-lis, and one page that's unwatermarked. And gee, you know, what's interesting is the crown watermark, and what do we find on the Vold Simula? The exact same crown watermark. So, long story, very long story, short. In 1506, Waldsmuller, Ringman, Ludd and probably Scott gathered together to print a new edition of the Geographia. They then got funding in 1507 with uh, Duke René to sponsor the printing of the Waldsmuller map. So they stopped printing the Geographia and they started printing the Waldsmuller map. However, Duke René and Ringman die unexpectedly, they lose their sponsor, so for a number of years, they're trying to relocate, trying to finish this, printing this volume. They moved to Strasbourg, and around 1512, Voldsmill and Schott, they relocate, they finish the new edition of the Geographia, and then in 1520, this is bound together with the 1520 copy of the Tableau Nova. So just by starting to link the watermarks together and then knowing that these things link, we can really start to increase the information we know about volumes that we previously had no idea were linked together in any way. And then taking that one step further, so I'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but imagine if we had a Google map of the page of the object or the document or the manuscript we're looking for. And we click on there anywhere and we throw in some of the analyses of the fibres, the spectra of the inks, we look at some of the state of the fibres, there's an inscription on the side so we look to see the difference between the printing and the, the writing ink, 
we go in close and we do that overlay in terms of what does a woodblock look like. Now we're starting to layer all this information together in one way, linking it to that digital cultural object. What up the next layer, what I want with this is like, okay, what are the publications that we can link to? Rather than if I happen to know that Michael's written a publication on this, I know it's out there, but if I didn't know about that, I wouldn't better link it together. So we're really looking, and this is, I, I think, a little bit too big, but I always think that's a good thing. How can we actually start to pull together and interact with data in a different way? And this is sort of linking the data across and within the collection items, within the object itself in terms of the scientific analyses, linking in other work that people have done, and really bringing this thing alive in a new way with the new digital interaction we have. Because if we didn't have the digital access and we couldn't layer and link this information as easily as we can with this, we wouldn't be able to pull all this information together and make it accessible. And another example here, if you think of the uh, uh, Gettysburg Address, for example, we can do the same thing. We can look at fibres, we can look at the hand printing, some of the analyses, we can pull in the spectra of the ink, the fingerprint, and also the fibres, and then start to link in the scholarly interpretations of the changes and things that we're finding on that. The Clear Mellon Fellowship is an incredible opportunity, and I asked Michael if he wouldn't mind if I mentioned this. This is a fellowship that was offered at, between Clear and Mellon for a researcher, a doctoral researcher, to be based at the Library of Congress looking at original source materials. And here's the catch. You have the entire facilities of my labs to look at these objects in any way to find out whatever your question might be. It's kind of pretty cool. I want to go back to school and do it. <laughs> and so we've had two wonderful fellows uh, so far. Our first fellow, Amy Brady, now Dr. Amy Brady, was looking at the Federal Theatre Project. And this was from the Depression where they were trying to create jobs for playwrights and people who were uh, out, of, out of work. And this was um, one play called The Class of 29. It got a little bit controversial because the press got wind of it, and basically it was about the fact that the class of 29, it was performed in the 1930s, they couldn't get jobs. So some of the the, uh, the actors were talking about that they were going to go and join the Communist Party. So this got a little bit of political hype, and unfortunately the producer was pressured, and it was suggested that he needed to damp that down. So all of a sudden. We're seeing this change, and this is for those of you from this afternoon. This is onion paper, so it was actually quite difficult to image. We had to do different um, focusing on this. But all of a sudden, the central character, who initially was very strong, is suddenly upstage, and his text, which was very strong, was suddenly now becomes more comical. And then there's a whole section here where essentially this section has been completely deleted out because it's dangerous to world capitalism. So uh, if you want to know more, I know she's writing a book about it, but you can see here, I mean, it was just incredibly interesting. No one had ever really looked at this collection before, and this was, you know, she just looked at a handful of about six or seven plays, but just the information that she pulled out was, was really wonderful. So just in summary, I just want to really reiterate the importance of the preservation of the original material, and you all have such a wonderful opportunity here with the incredible collection uh, to really look at and 
start to pull out the information that you can just see from visibly interacting with the books and the materials and, and gaining the knowledge. The, the digital cultural object, what's the new information we can gain from new technologies and layer onto and add to what we already know and the expertise that people already know about that material itself. The archaeology of the book, I just love the thought that we're digging in underground without doing anything to it at all. And just that collaboration, that strength of collaboration between new technologies, all the multidisciplinary fields, bringing them all together. So, thank you for listening. to keep most of you awake. I know you've had a very long day. Could you say again what you were doing with the Madison papers? They've already been digitized, but you were... We actually went through the entire collection with the spectral imaging. Mm -hmm. So all of the pages, because they're very fragile, and so we can create both what we call the full spectrum colour image, just for people to actually access that, but we also have now all the data to better look at and pull out any of those erasures on any of the pages. Are, they, are you going to publish that or have it available for research? I hope we will have. We're still going through, um, working through all the metadata of that, of those materials. We probably need about 12 interns to work on it. <laughs> so if, if anyone wants to volunteer, but yes, absolutely, um, that's a resource that will be made. Um, available as much as possible. Time is just our restriction. I think this is really wonderful, and thank you for making it so clear for all of us. Um, and I have a kind of strange question, which you can feel free to dodge if it's uh, one that doesn't work, but the, the techniques of spectroscopy are incredibly powerful, and the ability to analyze and look at the kind of data you're getting out of there, and looking at Raman spectroscopy and infrared, and looking at, you know, identifying the elements and the pieces going on there. But these resources are not typically available to cultural institutions, I don't think. Um, and I guess what I'm curious about is, in your experience, is there a light version of this sort of spectral imaging? Is there some sort of toy or handheld tool? Can you sit down with you know, an old chemistry lab spectrometer and point it out a little bit of ink and then say something useful? Or is there kind of the, the non-big lab version? I think that's a wonderful question, because that's a lot of my work has been uh, pro bono and working with institutions who don't have a lot of money. And I'm uh, very privileged to be working in a lab where I can actually bring in these technologies and try to develop it. So one of my wishes is, for example, can we actually almost get to a, I'm sorry, I think too far here, but can we almost get to a phone app? Um, I've been working with colleagues in the southwest where it would be incredible use, incredibly useful if we can identify with maybe two spectral bands from just a normal RGB camera, we put a certain filter on it and say, okay, we can pick up that this, this um, Native American gown, um, cloak, has pesticides, therefore we need to look at the safety of this if it's worn in a ceremony. So, yes, I'm, that's very close to my heart that it's nice being up here, but it needs to be something where it can be actually more widely available. And the there's a lot of systems now that are, the cost has come down significantly and I've worked with a lot of colleagues to you know, actually go out there, work with people to get funding and see how much we can do. But no, you're absolutely right because if we don't have access to it, it's just 
it's a nice tantalising toy, but it's, it's, it's not very useful. Essentially that's to give people access in either the original or reformatted form. So quite often a lot of our materials, some of the rare materials, uh, are very fragile. So even if you were a researcher, you could come to the library, but you would not be allowed to look at or visibly touch, no, visibly touch, sorry, it's only Monday, <laughs> physically touch and access that material. So while it may seem a bit of a dichotomy, we can now image something with a lot less intensity of light, about the same amount of time, one time capture, and add layers of information. They're already there, but actually now give you more knowledge about the original. So it's again that balance of the original or the reformatted, and this is essentially, to some extent, a type of reformatted form. But I think there's also the change from a library to a centre of knowledge and the fact that we, we, we don't want to work in silos, we actually want to interact, and that collaboration between the different sections, you know, all the different levels of expertise, that really adds to what we know and adds to our knowledge of our culture as a society, and so I think that's, that's part of it. There's been a, I'm on uh, some groups internally at the library called the Futures Programme, where we're really starting to look at where are we now and where does the library need to go in terms of some of our strategies for the future? It's always one of those nice things that keep you awake at night. You know, for the first time in a very long time, I'm kind of happy I take federal taxes. <laughs> 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 because if Fidel's toys cost a lot of money, I'm happy to pay my share of them for this kind of stuff because this seems to me to be groundbreaking work. And it seems to me that we've been given not merely <clears throat> a course in archaeology of the book, but a master class in kind of the stratigraphy of the text. And that seems to me quite a remarkable thing. Uh, we will gather in the reception room in the first floor of Alderman Library to continue the conversation. But meanwhile, I hope you'll join me in thanking Penelope France for her most stimulating. <laughs>